Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Today, we are sticking totally with breastfeeding, and I have with me today, Melissa Bedward. Melissa, welcome to the show. I think I'm so glad to be here. Melissa is a very interesting woman. She holds a master's degree, and she also has certification as a registered nurse. She is certified in obstetrics and in electronic fetal monitoring, and wait for it, she is also an IBCLC. I think it would be fair to say that Melissa has been around the block a time or two since she started her uh, nursing career in 2007, and then she transferred to labor and delivery, and fast forward, she has done a whole bunch of really good things, including most recently, she has been uh, doing parent education, but as you can see, she has done plenty of other things as well, or she wouldn't be holding all of those different certifications. So I asked Melissa if she would come and help us today to celebrate IBCLC Day. So all of you who are out there and you are IBCLCs, I'm giving an applause. Bang, bang, bang. Hope you heard that. That is my applause for you. You have made a giant leap in your career. And for those of you who are kind of sort of thinking about becoming an IBCLC, you are going to want to hear everything that Melissa is going to tell us today because Melissa not only earned her IBCLC, but she took her test during the pandemic which, as far as I'm concerned, the woman deserves an award just for being able to get through that experience and much less to actually pass it, which, of course, she did. So, Melissa, I want to back up here just a little bit. In my experience, and I have trained more than 25% of the currently certified IBCLCs in the United States, and that doesn't include those who have retired or uh, lately died. Um, so I get a different story from everybody. For some people, preparing for the IBCLC was kind of like a last-minute thought. They were like, oh, wow, yeah, sure, I could do this. Bam, bam, bam. And for others, and I can clearly remember that woman that was in my course in Dallas a few years ago, she said it was seven years before she really got to the end of the journey. And that's not counting the woman in Atlanta who said to me, I was a, a La Leche League leader for 17 years. And I said, well, that's really great. What took you 17 years in order to get your IBCLC? She said, oh, Marie, I had to raise kids. <laughs> so everybody's journey is a little bit different. 
Melissa, how would you describe your journey? Would you say it was long, short, easy, hard, last minute, wanted it all your life since you were four years old? Give us, <laughs> give us just a glimpse here. Um, I would say it was probably a little bit long and fragmented. I started off um, once I started in labor and delivery. Um, the IBCLC who I worked with, she suggested that I go to um, get my CLC. <laughs> Uh-huh. And I'm um, go, you know, take take a course. She think she thought I'd be good at it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was my first real introduction into the world of breastfeeding. Before that, I didn't really give it so much thought. Okay. And just learning so much about it and what good I can do with it. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, I should get my IBCLC. <laughs> now, I really want to follow up on that because That's a question I get very frequently. Somebody has had a a different certification, and some people actually think that they've got to get some certification before they get their IBCLC, and that is totally false. False, false, false. You can go from having zero certification to having your IBCLC. And and the other question I get is, do I have to be a nurse? And the answer is no. Uh, But what motivated you or what what made you feel that you wanted to move to getting your IBCLC? I was just thinking about, you know, the future of my career. How can I help? How can I educate? Where would I be most productive? And it gave me so much satisfaction to help the new moms, not only deliver, but stay with them and help them breastfeed and, you know, give them some knowledge that suddenly I had now. I wanted to build on that. Now, Melissa, I could argue that you could have done that without any lactation <laughs> certification. You could have, yeah, I mean, seriously, as a registered nurse in the state of New York, which is what I am, I'm a registered nurse in the state of New York, too. And I was doing all this stuff long before I got my IBCLC. But what was it that made you feel that that IBCLC was somehow going to propel your career forward? Um, I was getting a lot of encouragement from um, the lactation consultant that I was working with. And then I took some time. I finished my master's, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then lo and behold, hey, you want to give your, you know, want to give a stab at, you know, doing lactation? You know, we're trying to get baby friendly. I'm like, oh, Ah, okay. Okay. So there was some opportunity in your hospital, which you perceived if you did not have your IBCLC might hold you back. Exactly. Got it. Got it. And and I think, Melissa, that is probably true for other people, too. They might not word it exactly that way. But, um, yeah. Have you ever regretted having your IBCLC? No, not at all. Well, I wrote an entire blog post on how expensive it is to get your IBCLC. <laughs> Very expensive. It is. I mean, it's a lot of bucks. <laughs> and by the way, I tell people, make sure that you budget for things like child care while you, uh, you might have to travel. Now, if you live in New York City, you're probably okay. But uh, in a lot of remote places, I've had people say they've had to take an overnight trip in order to get to the testing center the night before and get their head together. I mean, there's a lot of money going on. But even with all of knowing what you know now about all of the work and all of the expense that is involved, you would still do it. I would do it all over again. Woman, you are speaking my language. Okay. (laughs) You are. All right. So I really want to dive into this bit about the pandemic because 
It is not unusual for me to hear from people who have taken my course. They call me at four o'clock in the afternoon and they swear that they've uh, failed the IBLCE exam. And I say, no, 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 no. You're probably just fine. Everybody thinks that. But this year it was different. It wasn't people calling me saying, I think I failed. The questions were so hard. It was people calling me, telling me, I think I failed. My nerves were just frazzled to no live and end. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. But first of all, uh, did you have the option to do either home proctoring or go to the testing center? Um, I had both options. You had both options, but you did the home, uh, the home proctoring. Yes. If you had it to do again, would you still do the home proctoring? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell us Walk us through what was it like from the first time that you got the thing that said, Dear Melissa, you're signed up for your home proctoring. What was it like after you got the green light for doing the home proctoring? Well, it was, I would suggest to avoid chat rooms and groups because that's when my nerves really started to get the best of me because uh, I was hearing horror stories yeah. about the home proctored um, exam. So, you know, things like the computer would cut off, the internet would come off, or they thought they were scheduled for a break, but they weren't, and a test just stopped. It was just horror story after horror story, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I do? But on the other hand, some people who scheduled themselves at a site, a day before, two days before, the site would say, we yeah. had an outbreak, so we can't <laughs> So it was like, I, you know, which one was the worst, you know, the worst plan. So, but I think had to do it all over again, definitely I would have, I would have taken my chance at a testing site. Okay. When, when they said you can go ahead and do your, um, your home proctoring, did you have to prepare your computer in a special way? Yes. So when you go on their website, um, the the Proctor company, it will take you through the steps to prepare your computer. Certain, ah. yeah, certain things like firewalls have to be taken off, and you have your computer has to basically get to know the program because it takes over your computer. How far in advance should somebody do that? Is it best to do it a few hours before or a few weeks before? Give me some perspective here. Um, I would say at least a few days before, maybe a week. I did it in okay. advance and the email they give you it this suggests it tells you to do it yeah but i can just see some people putting it off not a good idea <laughs> okay okay and were you able to accomplish all of that by yourself or did you have to have somebody help you to do all of those things um i think initially i was having a little bit of trouble so um there was a there was like a um, the IT chat box, just to ah. let them know what the okay. issue was, and they walk you through it. And that was in the prep period? Yes. Okay, because I'm thinking to myself, I would be scared out of my skull, and I would need to have my husband about four inches from my elbow. Uh, but it clearly, you were able to negotiate it pretty much by yourself. Yeah, I was extra paranoid. I had to make sure. <laughs> extra <laughs> I made paranoid. Sure. I, I think I checked the system several times on the days leading up and then that morning also. I've taken the exams several times, uh, sometimes that were, were the uh, old-fashioned paper and pencil day, and then I've done it uh, by computer. 
And they really put you through the paces with your identification and you can't have, I remember I've been denied having a Kleenex with me, uh, uh, yes. tissue. Uh, did they go through all of that or was home proctoring, did they kind of figure that you could have your tissue or whatever? No, home proctoring, I couldn't have anything. Um, I had to pick up my laptop and 360 degrees, ceiling, wall, floor, under the desk, turn the chair over. Um, I had my printer next to me and they said, go get a blanket and cover your printer. Oh, wow. Yeah, like anything that was exposed. So I pretty much cleaned out, you know, I was fortunate enough to have my own office in my house and anything you know, suspicious to them, I had to cover it with a sheet or a blanket. Sure. Okay. And what did you have to do as related to the identification piece? Oh, that was a moment of extreme anxiety. I had yeah. my, I, <laughs> luckily, it was a whole thing. I had my driver's license and they could not see it. Oh. And I started to panic. And luckily I had my work ID like a few steps away from me and my passport. So my advice would have several, have several forms of picture ID as a backup. Yes. And I just want to mention that those two pieces of identification must match each other. Yes. So if you are Melissa, a bedward on one and Melissa bedward on another one, it is my understanding that they will, I've heard this from other IBCLC candidates, that they will not accept that. I heard the same thing. Yeah, you've heard the same thing. So, you know, while in one respect, I would say, ah, come on, you know, in another respect, I would say, just be prepared for it. Yeah, luckily, I I was prepared. I thought, you know, maybe just in case, because, you know, the driver's license is so small, he just couldn't see it. And he was very nice. You know, I got lucky. I got a very nice proctor, but it was, I started to panic. I bet. I bet. How long did the, I'm going to call it check-in process. I don't know if that's really it, but, you know, how long was it from the time that they opened their screens until the time that you were able to mow through all of those requirements and actually sit down and take your test? About 15 to 20 minutes. Wow. It was long. Okay. And it's a different person that does the check-in from the person who's proctoring the exam. Oh. Yeah. I guess another question along those lines is, um, what did, did they make you take off your earrings and all of that stuff? <laughs> so it was suggested that you wear something with no pockets, short sleeve, um, you can't really have like, if you have a sweater or something, you have to roll up your sleeve, yeah, no earrings. Yeah. If, if you want glasses, you have to take the glasses off, show it to the camera. Um, it was just better to go in with clothes. I had to lift my shirt up. No. Up. <laughs> I mean, not all the way up, but I had a show that had nothing tucked into my waistband. You know, I had to show my feet anywhere you could possibly hide a note. I don't know how many notes you would have to hide all over your body to take this exam, but they wanted wow. to see everything. everything. Yeah, everything. Um, I would say it hasn't been quite that rigorous when I've gone to the testing center, but I have known of other people for whom it was more rigorous 
in a different testing center. So it sounds to me like the home proctoring was even more rigorous. Uh, yeah. I have never been asked to li- lift up my shirt. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will tell you that my friend in Boston was asked to take off her earrings. A couple of people wrote in and actually, I think it was on my blog, they were asked to take off their wedding ring. And I had a living fit. Wow. Oh, yeah. I wrote a nasty gram to the IBLCE, and I said, this is over the top. I just, for some people, their wedding ring is sacred. That is just not something to mess with. Uh, so, wow. So did you have any glitches? So we already got it. It's like 20 minutes that you had to do all of this. I don't know, security proving yourself kind of thing. Right. But after you actually got into the exam, then what was it like? And what did you do if you, um, I don't know, suddenly discovered that you had to blow your nose or empty your bladder or whatever? Walk us through that a little bit. So the anxiety that was produced by um, people saying when they took, you know, the scheduled break, that there are problems that happened You know, you had to wait for permission to leave and come back and go through. So I made up my mind. I was not taking a break. I'm going straight through. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah. I refuse to take a break. I'm not taking a chance. I don't think I had any water or anything leading up to taking the exam. Luckily, I didn't have a cold. So I went straight through. And um, did you have some sort of a backup plan for if your internet went to pot that day? Um, I did not have a backup plan. I just really hoped and prayed. I usually don't have a problem with my internet, but I was just pleased not today. Yeah. Of all days, I can't have a problem. So I was just hoping and just trying to get it done. I want to strongly suggest to anybody who's listening out there that you do have a backup plan. And uh, for instance, one of the things is that I have a hotspot on my phone. So right off the bat, I would be thinking that that, now I would be shaking, okay? My fingers would be shaking doing it, but (laughs) (laughs) that would be my first go-to thought. So I would say, make sure that you have a backup plan, luckily for Melissa. And Melissa, you're in the city. I mean, you are in New York City. You're probably close to about a a gazillion cell towers, but yeah. you know, if you're in Bozeman, Montana, I don't know how that works. I, I, I really don't. Is there anything? That, okay, so we know the first thing that you would do differently during a pandemic is that you would try to get into the testing center itself rather than do the home proctoring. Other than that, is there anything that you would have done differently about the home proctoring? Um, no. I mean, once we got through the glitches and the anxiety I took my exam. I hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> I made sure I was in a room where no one could walk in. I threatened everyone in my family. Oh, <laughs> Do right. not come here. Right, right, right. right. I had a sign on okay. my door. So besides that, it, it was okay. I wouldn't do anything different. Well, I just want to thank you in advance on behalf of thousands of listeners who are going to be listening to this because this has all been kind of a mystery to everybody. And it's really good to hear that you did have a successful story. You were able to get through what you were asked to do. You also were able to pass the exam. Now, I'm sure you had your fingers shaken a time or two, but nonetheless, uh, it can be done. 
I think anticipation and just staying cool and notice, by the way, everyone, that Melissa said no. She really did not want to take a break. And I think that the whole security thing would have been a whole other thing if you'd had to get back in. So, Melissa, talk to us a little bit about your role as an IBCLC in the hospital. Now, my guess is that you got to be an IBCLC in the hospital because you'd always been in the hospital. Hospital is what you do. It's your life. I get it. I've been there, done that. But what would you say are some of the highlights, maybe, the thing you like the best about your role as an IBCLC within the hospital? Um, I like meeting the patients after, you know, they delivered, they were calm and happy, the new baby, and just talking to them. You can get a wealth of information just sitting next to them and just letting them talk, tell yeah. them what their goals are, tell you, you know, just, and they, you gain their trust like that too. And then they feel free to ask questions, to, you know, discuss their goals with feeding. Sometimes the goals to breastfeed, sometimes it's not, but whatever it is, you, you can be there. And yeah. I took great pleasure in helping just, just helping them when they felt so frustrated at, at wit, wit's end, especially due to the pandemic, when sometimes they didn't have anyone with them yep. except for me and the, um, the other nurses. Yes. Yeah, to me, a little bit of that is doing what I guess I might call getting in on the ground level. I am with them at the beginning of their journey, and somehow uh, I feel like that's what you're saying. You were able to get a grip on what was happening from the beginning, where they wanted to go. They're probably pouring out some of their questions, anxieties, et cetera, and you're able to address those right from the get-go, yes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And what would you say are some of the frustrations of being an IBCLC in the hospital? I can hear you chuckling already. (laughs) Um, The biggest frustration is... Um, collaborating with other providers. You know, you'd spend so much time and energy gaining the trust of a patient, you know, using every trick in the book to get the baby, to latch on, to have them trust the process. And then maybe a day later, a pediatrician would walk in. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Say something. Oh, I don't like the way this looks and this test looking. Ah, just give the baby a bottle. It's uh, here's the one that I always love. Well, you know, breast bottle, it's all pretty much the same. Yes. Ah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I just turned myself inside out explaining how it was not the same. Exactly. But I'm just the nurse, and I'm sure you're just the nurse. Yes. Yeah. And somehow, and you know, I do not want to go physician bashing because I will tell you, there are some. Fabulous physicians out there, physicians who have taken my course, physicians I've worked with, pediatricians, neonatologists, God bless them. They are really there to beat the drum and and want to better themselves and better understand breastfeeding. Absolutely, they are out there. But unfortunately, the ones, I remember one doctor that I worked with actually was the top graduating uh, MD in his class from Harvard. The guy was brilliant, no doubt about it, but he knew exactly nothing about breastfeeding. (laughs) All right. And he'd also graduated some 30 years before that, which meant that 
I'd like to think we know a thing or two more about breastfeeding now than we did, you know, 30 years prior. So would you say that it's part of the, I'm I'm trying not to lead the witness here, but (laughs) (laughs) I, I agree. I was absolutely intimidated, frustrated, whatever else by those one to one interactions but did you also encounter that in the bigger picture, the committees, the whatever? Was that a frustration of being an IBCLC in the hospital? It was a frustration. However, I did experience a lot of small victories also. Yeah. Okay, tell um, us about those. Tell us just one even. Um, Sure. Um, I got more buy-in from our PAs. Oh, good. And I had one particular PA call me and say, hey, can you come to triage this lady? We don't, we're not sure what's going on, but I think she's engorged. And already I was so happy that, you know, she decided it was important enough to involve me. We went, um, saw the patient, turned out she um, had mastitis. Ah, yes. Yeah. And I pushed, you know, for her to get swabbed and it was textbook and it was so satisfying, you know, not that she had mastitis, right, but, right, right, right. but the yeah, collaboration exactly. of care was very satisfying to me. And we ended up actually doing um, a teaching. We did a, like a grand rounds about mastitis, you know, for yeah. the doctors. Yeah, yeah, um, good. And so you had a little synergy there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I would be eager to say, Melissa, that usually – I, I, I always call these people disciples, you know, if, if I could get a disciple one way, yes. <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily need to convert the whole hospital. But if you can get one disciple at a time, as clearly this, it was the PA, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, she's going to tell another PA and that PA is going to tell one of the NPs and so forth and so on. So once you kind of make a little inroads and, and get that awareness, I do think it helps. And your example is just outstanding. I was very happy and very, you know, very proud. And we've had a lot of converts, yeah. you know, so it's, ha- it's good to see that and hope it perpetuates. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that you have also had a lot of experience being an IBCLC in the NICU. In the short time that we have left, can you give us just a little snapshot of what is it like to be an IBCLC in the NICU? You have to be very proactive in the ah, NICU. Ah, good word. Yes. Tell you us have to about make that. your You definitely have to make your presence known and build relationships with the nurses and be a presence at like their rounding in the morning. So the doctors, everyone, the entire care team can see how important it is for, you know, yes, the baby's a NICU, but we have the medicine right here. Mommy has the medicine and we're going to help. Yeah, we're going to help, you know, the baby, you know, recover even better. And that's another group um, when you get buy in. It's very encouraging. Now, Melissa, remind me, were you a born and bred NICU nurse? Because I see that you have your electronic fetal monitoring certification. So I'm thinking that you did your time in labor and delivery. Oh, my Um, time was in labor and delivery. Okay. Okay. So then you were not part and parcel of the NICU inner circle, right? No, not initially. Not initially. Yeah. And that's kind of another thing, because I think that it's I cannot imagine what it must be like when you aren't a nurse. Uh, but as a nurse, uh, it's 
you're still a little bit of an outsider. Uh, I actually did not have that problem, but I've seen that problem with other people. And it's like this, they just don't understand. NICU to me is like a little village in and of itself. (laughs) Am I right? It is. Yeah. And it's all about the numbers and it's all about the technology and it's all about, uh, I don't know, the numbers is all, all that comes to my head. And so it's really hard sometimes to get past that. How were you able to be credible and fit in? Because you're sort of an insider, but you're sort of an outsider. If, if there were one or two things that you would attribute that to, what would it be? Um, number one, we were p- preparing for baby-friendly surveys. So I spent oh, okay. a lot of time with the NICU nurses, you know, drilling them and teaching them and just, you know, why is it important? So we developed really good relationships. Okay. That was all, that was like an in for you then. Yeah, it was an instant in. <laughs> yeah, an instant in because sometimes it doesn't really exactly work that way. And as an IBCLC, would you say what would you say was a major part of your role? Was it more with the clients, more with the neonatologists, or more with the nurses? Now, I know it's all three of those things. <laughs> uh, and by the way, probably some outside uh, community coordination as well. But what would you say was the biggest part of your role? Um, more with the nurses and just independently being proactive. Like, yeah. if I know, you know... You know, I, I I would round on labor and delivery, mother, baby, NICU, and I would have a good picture of what's going on and who needed my attention and pay attention to, you know, if a patient was admitted to ICU, they would need, you know, to see someone. So the nurses always, someone, someone always came to me and made sure okay. I was aware of a situation or a patient. Yeah, and that's like another whole topic because sometimes... Uh, one of my frustrations sometimes was I didn't have any idea that the baby was there or that, right. y- yeah. Uh. And what would you say was your role with the babies that are hanging between life and death? I struggle with this enormously. The mother wants to pump her milk. She wants to do the right thing. She knows that she is the only one that can provide. You've You've done all that. Yeah. But. How do you deal with that whole, to me, it's like bonding and grieving all at the same time. Uh, any tips for people who are in that situation, supporting that mother? I think that's really hard. Um, it's extremely difficult when you have a very sick baby and you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but the conversations I've had with the mother is, you know, you try to empower them and let them know that, you know, this decision you're making to pump your milk, to, you know, come see your baby, touch your baby. You know, sometimes they can't even touch the baby. Right. right. Sometimes they just need someone to listen and to encourage them. Oh, oh, Melissa. (laughs) Funny you say that because I had another guest uh, a while ago where we talked about communication. And I said to her, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a new nurse, I thought, oh, yeah, no communication, no problem. I can talk to people. I said, and then I realized, yeah, communication was really more about listening. Definitely. (laughs) She said, yes, and nurses don't always know how to do that. And I would agree, you know. Uh, 
I'm not your age mate, so maybe I'm just old here, but for, <laughs> but for me, there was a big emphasis in my nurse's training about basically being a fix-it person, okay? Right. As opposed to sitting, listening, validating, clarifying, and here's a word I don't use very often, but empowering. I think it's gotten to be a word that we've kind of thrown around, but it's really, as one of my recent guests has said, it's really about helping that person to be the best version of themselves. Correct. And I was like, oh, ding, ding, ding. So true. Uh, Melissa, before we go out uh, right now, anything else that you would like to say to those who are either trying to become an IBCLC or celebrating this day as an IBCLC? Any final thoughts? I would say while I was preparing, I was very impressed with anyone who's an IBCLC already. <laughs> so much information, and it's, it's such a skill set that requires so many different things. It's so impressive, and I was really proud to pass my exam. Yes, indeed. As, as well you should be. We're all applauding, believe <laughs> me. <laughs> I would just like to remind everyone, if you don't happen to know and if you are listening to this when it airs, you're in good shape. If you don't listen to it when it airs, you will not be able to take advantage of my free, get that, F-R-E-E, free, my favorite four-letter F word, uh, short program. I am offering more than one SERP. Uh, I believe it's 1.7, but I'm going on my feeble memory here. And you can pick that up free at mariebiancuso.com. I will spell that because I've been spelling it for most of my life. Uh, it always tickles me when some person says, could you could you spell that again? I'm like, oh, sure. I've, I've done that many times. Here you go. It's M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U. Z-Z-O dot com. And since this is a freebie, I'm going to spell it again. That is M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U-Z-Z-O. If you go to MarieBiancuso.com, you can opt in and you can get your ESERP for free. But you must do it within the time frame that is on the website. Now, you can always get it later for money, okay? But here are your choices. Do it now and get it for free, or do it later and pay me money. That's not a real hard choice, right? So that is what I am doing for you in celebration of IBCLC Day. And the other thing that I'm doing for you for IBCLC Day is I am bringing you IBCLC par excellence, Melissa Bedward. Melissa, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Alrighty. And for those of you who are out there, keep on doing what you're doing. And for those of you who are the mothers, you can remember you're doing this with a little bit of help, but your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.